I was on the phone with my lawyer and my banker and accountant. And I was like, there was one particular vendor, a heating and air conditioning supply, a carrier distributor in Colorado that we purchased all our equipment from. And two of the other companies I purchased also purchased their equipment from them. So when I bought those companies, I assumed their debt as well as, you know, what we typically owed them. And I got a call one day from the company, the CFO of the company and said, do you realize that between what you owe us and what these companies owe us, it's $480,000. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive the risk reduction checklist I created from the lessons I've learned from all of my guests. And also get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Also in the community, you'll receive a super special podcast listener discount on my six-week valuation masterclass boot camp. The boot camp is for those who want to learn exactly how to value companies like a pro and advance their career in finance. Again, go to myworstinvestmentever.com to join our free community. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Weldon Long. Weldon, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock, Andrew. Uh, you're an interesting cat. I'm looking forward to this interview, this conversation. I am. And I can say out of more than 400 interviews, I feel like I've done the most amount of research on you. <laughs> so you're in trouble. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I think, I think the audience is going to enjoy it. So let me introduce you to the audience. Weldon Long is a successful entrepreneur, sales expert, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Power of Consistency. Prosperity Mindset Training for Sales and Business Professionals. In 2009, his business was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of America's fastest growing privately held companies. Today, Weldon is one of the nation's most powerful speakers and a driven motivator who teaches the sales and prosperity mindset philosophies that catapulted him from desperation and poverty to a life of wealth and prosperity. Weldon is honored to have served some of America's finest companies like Comcast, Franklin Covey, Organization, and many others. But more importantly, I want to read to you what voice came to me from listening to your book. Here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, I'm Weldon Long. I just need one opportunity, one shot. Give me a chance and I'll sell more of whatever you sell than anyone ever has. I'll never cheat or lie, and I'll never complain about the economy or the leads. I just need a chance. And that is a quote from his book that I heard many times, and I always, always remember it. Well, then take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, it's really interesting that you lead with that because, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was a real interesting point in my life. To give your listeners a little bit of background, when I was having that conversation, with prospective employers, I was 39 years old and I was living in a homeless shelter in the first half of 2003, January through June of 2003. And the reason I was living in that homeless shelter in January of 2003 is because I had just completed serving 13 years in federal and state prisons. From 1987 until 2003, that roughly 17, 16, 17 year span, I spent 13 of those years walk in prison yards. I was a ninth grade high school dropout. I was a punk and I was a thug and a knucklehead. 
and lived a really dysfunctional, very violent, you know, very destructive life. And, you know, of course, my story, what I do this part of my life and, and the mindset and the sales and that really is a reflection of what I learned going through all the, the adversity and struggle, all of which I created myself, by the way, mm. I am not a victim by any stretch of the imagination. But it's interesting you would lead with that because, man, that was that was something else, walking out of prison at 39 years old in the shelter, desperate for a job so I could get a place to live, get my son and begin rebuilding my life. So that's a cool place yeah. to start. Yeah, and I just want to, you know, recommend to the listeners that you get the power of consistency. And I highly recommend that you get it in the audible version because, you know, Weldon reads it. And I think it's something that you can listen to over and over again. And, you know, he talks about other things that really were valuable for me, which were you, you talked about the box and that, you know, the tools and the things that you have in the box are really determined. They will determine what you can create. And, you know, you say, like, you have parts for a motorcycle in a box, you're not going to end up making a cake from what's in the box. Right. And, and so, you know, there's just so much stuff. So I highly recommend for the listeners to, to hear that. I also, you know, I can relate in some ways, you know, I went through addiction basically. And I went, I was kind of locked up to some extent, a very different type of lockup in three different rehabs when I was young. And when I was 17, I got out and I graduated from high school and I was sober. I had been nearly a year off of drugs and alcohol and all the destruction and violence and other bad things that were going on. And I was free. And I felt a lot like how you felt out there trying to make my mark. My track record was pretty crap. I had destroyed that in a lot of ways. I didn't have any money to go to university. There's no way I could do that. I just, you know, had to go out. I worked in factories and I took any job I could really at the time to try to survive. But I had one thing. And that is, I had my happiness and I had my freedom. And, you know, there's a point in your book where you're running. You're running from the bus stop to the halfway house to get in before 6 p.m. And the penalty of not being there by 6 p.m. was going back to prison. And, you know, that just, that just hit me. I mean, I tell you, I've cried a few times listening to that. So, you know, there's just a lot I could relate to. And I think for anybody out there who's struggling and suffering, you know, Weldon, you know, the way he just talked about it was that that was a whole nother part of his life. Of course, the, the criminal aspect, but then that whole recovery from that, the power of consistency, and you do so much more nowadays, but it's just, uh, you know, it's a great, great tool for anybody out there who's struggling right now. Well, I appreciate that, Andrew. And, you know, there are some, some kind of poignant parts of, of really my first book, also the upside of fear, which is the autobiography of, of the story, the power of consistency. And, consistency selling that you mentioned here. And, you know, it, it, it's so amazing to me because as you're talking, Stephen Covey was one of my mentors and a very dear friend before he passed away. And when I first read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I was the guy sitting alone in the prison cell. And that book was kind of the seminal book that set me on this journey. I was in federal prison. I'd already done about six years in state prison. Now I was in, in, in 1996, I was in federal prison and my father passed away. And that was kind of my moment of clarity, kind of my, you know, epiphany that right. I had to change my life. And I, I picked up a copy of the seven habits. And in that book, Dr. Covey talks about, you know, your circle of influence versus your circle of concern. And most people go through their life focused on the things they're concerned about, but over which they have no control. Right. And they're focused on, on, you know, the economy or the competitor or the weather and things they don't control. And 
And he talked about if you focus on your circle of influence, which of course is ourselves, mm. right? That that circle of influence will, will expand. And I remember reading that I was sitting in a prison cell and my circle of influence at that time, Andrew was so small that I didn't influence what time I ate mm. or what time, you know, the lights came on or off, right? I had seeded all of that ability and, and influence to this, the, the federal government and the state government at various points in my life. And I remember Dr. Covey said, if you just focus on yourself, you focus on what you can change, that that circle of influence will expand. And I read that in 1996. And here we are some 25 years later, and we sit across the world from each other, you in Thailand, I'm in, mm. happen to be in San Diego this week. And, you know, it's like, I'm thinking, wow, that circle of influence here, it's having an impact on you halfway wow. around the world. And as you mentioned, listening to the audio version of that with your mother, like who would have thought that some knucklehead sitting in a prison cell 25 years ago would say something at any point in his life that someone of uh, your position, your notoriety, mm -hmm. your success in life would be impacted by those words. It's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And it was just such an example of what Dr. Covey talked about. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm just, my eyes are welling up with tears just thinking about it. And I think for the, for the listeners out there, there's a couple lessons to take away. First, I always say, and my mom taught me this, never give up on somebody that you love mm. who's in trouble. I had my mom not giving up on me and it helped me, you know, tremendously. But it also means that as you are sitting there in your situation, no matter where you are, you're in the US, you're in Pakistan, you're in the UK listening to this, and you're struggling with someone who is, you know, having problems in their life, things change, things yeah. can change. And Weldon is a great example of that. And uh, things can go change so dramatically that you go yeah. from having no impact to having global impact. So, you know, take that and also the same thing when i was in the depths of my addiction there's not one person out there that would have predicted that i could have accomplished what i accomplished so let's all take that as as hope and that's special, andrew but, but but i just want to add to that yeah that never give up on anyone but don't forget that includes yourself <laughs> you know don't give up on yourself because i'm sure in the throes of your dysfunction all those years ago there were times where you thought about checking out one of the things I always tell people is, you know, there's nothing wrong with falling down because mm -hmm. falling down is making a mistake. We screw up, we trip and we fall, but there's everything wrong with laying down and laying down is giving up. And mm -hmm. so it's not just others that we need to make sure we don't give up on. We need to make sure that we, we never give up on ourselves. Mm. Yep. I just want everybody to hear that and remember that as, as we talk, the, the last thing I just want to talk about briefly before we go into your story is, you know, just thinking about, you know, what you can control and all that, it reminded me of you talked about how in your business, what you decided to do was give a money back guarantee. Mm -hmm. And it was part of what you said really catapulted you above your competitors. And I'm reminded of a teacher I had when I was a 24 year old guy named Dr. Deming. And Dr. Deming taught about quality. And I was just a young guy in the audience listening to him. And I later wrote a book about, you know, what what I got from his teaching called Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 points. So he had a profound impact, but he always said something that kind of was confusing when I was young, but it's more clear now. He said, do not focus on your competitor. 
And I just didn't, you know, I always thought, you know, all we're doing so much in big business nowadays is benchmarking, you know. Well, they're doing that, their, co their product has that, and ours has that. And when you only focus on your competitor, you miss the huge opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think that story kind of taught a little bit about what I learned from Dr. Deming is that you made a decision that, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this, even though nobody else is doing it. We know there's a cost. It's also going to reveal weaknesses that we have that we're going to have to fix because we're going to be held accountable if we install, a, I think it was an HVAC system or some, whatever it was that you were installing and it, the customer wasn't happy, you had to uninstall it. So just right. maybe you could just link that together. Well, what a privilege for you to be able to study directly under Edwards Deming, uh, just yeah. a fascinating and brilliant human being. And yeah, you know, to me in business, when people are making a decision to purchase or not, to me, what they're really doing is they're evaluating the element of risk. And when the element of risk of making the wrong decision is high, then it makes it very hard for people to say yes. When the element of risk is very low, then it makes it very easy to say yes. And one of the examples I use, if you're at Walmart and you got a flashlight in your hand, you're thinking about buying it, it's 15 bucks. You go to the checkout counter, you pay for it, you get home and you don't like it or it doesn't work right, right? What do you do with it? You bring it back to Walmart, you get your money back, you get a new one. So when you're standing there in the aisle in Walmart, there's no risk of making the mm -hmm. wrong decision because if it's the wrong decision, you can bring it back. But what if that flashlight was $150 instead of 15 and there was a sign there on the shelf that said, all sales are final, no refunds, no exchanges. <laughs> now the element of risk is much higher. And when the element of risk is so high, what do you do? Well, I need to think about it. I need to check with your competitors. You know, I need a better price in case I get ripped off. At least I'll get ripped off for less money. So it kind of, you know, causes what I call all these dysfunctional buying patterns because people are afraid. So for me in business, my number one job is to eliminate the risk. I want to make it easy for people to say yes to me. So the the risk reversal guarantee, which, by the way, has been around for you know at least 150 years in modern business, is as a way to take the risk off of the prospect and put it on me where it belongs. And if I do my job, I don't have to worry about giving their money back. Yeah, that's great. And it's lots of lessons in that book. I wrote on my whiteboard, you know, kind of I, I wrote a hallway with many doors down the hallway, knowing that the potential client is going to want to exit through one of those doors if they can. And our job is to prevent that by addressing it beforehand. And yeah. also you talked about getting a verbal commitment, you know, and yeah. I just thought lots of great stuff. So for the listeners out there, there's a lot of good goodness there you can get from that. So yeah. now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us your story. Yeah, you know, Andrew, I, I thought about this a lot leading up to this conversation. And, you know, I've got a lot of bad decisions I've made in my life. You don't end up in prison for 13 years because you're making great choices. But I wanted to put it in the context of something I thought that your listeners and your fan base, you know, could relate to, you know, more a more a traditional investment or a business yep. decision. And so, you know, I went to prison in 87 the first time. I went through 17 years of pure hell that I put myself through. In 1996, about halfway through that, my father dies, and I set on this journey of changing my life. And my master plan, by the way, was to find out what successful people did and start doing that. <laughs> that was almost a ninth grade high school dropout. 
I just didn't, I decided, I just humbled myself mm. that I was going to do. And I read the Stephen Covey's, the Tony Robbins and the Tom Hopkins and the Brian Tracy's and the Zig Ziglar's and the, you know, you just name it, you know, the, the classic stuff, right. James Allen and mm. Napoleon Hill and, you know, just all of that stuff. And I started like, wow, what, successful people do is pretty repeatable success leaves clues you know and the clues are all in these books you just kind of do this and so i set out doing that and if people want to get into really the 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 transformation that happened over those years psychologically spiritually emotionally they can read the upside of fear but let it suffice to say that over those next seven years like fundamentally at my core who i am as a man as a father as a husband as a human being as a citizen of the world as a citizen of our country all these things, like I changed fundamentally. I remember reading in the seven habits, Dr. Covey talked about there are certain principles that you have to live your life by if you're going to be successful and that you cannot break those principles. You can only break yourself against those principles. <laughs> and I remember reading it like, wow, that's what I've been doing. I was 32 years old when I read that. I'm like, wow, that's what I've been doing. I haven't compromised the principle of integrity, honor, faith, fidelity, you know, thrift. I haven't compromised. I just beat myself up against it. So I changed. Seven years later, I walk out of prison to that shelter in January of 2003. And I start knocking on doors and I'm desperate to find a job. I had a three-year-old son when my father died in 96. And I had father when I'd been on a short trip out on parole. So I was back in prison. My son was three and I'd abandoned him. And like my number one thing when I got out in 2003 was to find my son and to be a father, to be the father he deserved. And so by the time I got out in 2003, he was 10 years old and I didn't know him. And the first thing I had to do was find a job, get out of that shelter and get my boy. And so I did exactly as you opened this discussion with knocking on doors. How do you do? I'm well along. I just need one shot, one job, one opportunity. I'll never lie, cheat or steal. I'll sell more, whatever you've been selling, but never sell. I just need one chance. And people would say, man, we need some great attitudes like that around here. And I'd say, yes. And then I have to say, well, now there's a little more to the story. You know? <laughs> I spent 13 years in prison, got a ninth grade education, et cetera, et cetera. And people are like, ah, you know, we're not, you know. So this went on for six months. I finally get a job as a heating and air conditioning salesman in June of 2003. I turned out to be really good at it. And so I went out there and worked for a guy for about a year. And, you know, I, I didn't have any bills. I just walked out of prison. So everything I made, I saved. You know, I tell people, they talk about these credit repair businesses. You want the ultimate credit repair business? Go to prison for seven years because you come out and you are clean as a whistle. You don't even <laughs> exist. Man. You don't have nothing. And so a year later, I started my own business, my own heating and air conditioning. But I don't know the first thing about heating and air conditioning. What I knew was about sales and marketing and service and risk reversal, you know, and, and making good decisions and treating my customers well and hired a guy who's an operations expert that can manage the installs and service and all that stuff. You know, I don't have to know how to build cars to sell cars. I don't have to install air conditioners if I want to sell air conditioners. And we grew our company very quickly. As you mentioned in the introduction, that company in 2009 was selected as Inc. Magazine's one of their fastest growing small companies in America and was very successful. Well, in 2007, I opened that business in 2004. And in 2007, we were rolling. I mean, we were cooking with grease. We had become the largest residential heating and air conditioning company in Southern Colorado, where I live. We were rocking and rolling. And I got to tell you, Andrew, I was pretty, pretty full of myself. Even after all I'd been through, I was still a young man. I still had some hubris and I had a lot of confidence. I wouldn't say overconfidence, but I had a lot of confidence. And so I decided to 
I decided to start buying my competitors. And so over the course of 2006, actually is when it started in 2007, I consolidated four or five of the larger, older companies in town. And I took on a lot of debt to do that. I borrowed a lot of money from the bank. I assumed a lot of accounts payables for my, you know, the companies I was buying and, and, you know, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And, and in 2007, I had accumulated a lot of debt, but I had these companies who were rocking and rolling and then the housing crisis and the recession of 08 and 09 hit and the, the tidal wave of that debt, which I needed every dollar and every bit of success, you know, to service that debt. All of a mm. sudden business was, and I'll never forget that in 2009, I was on the phone with my lawyer and my banker and accountant. And I was like, there was one particular vendor, a heating and air conditioning supply, a carrier distributor in Colorado that we purchased all our equipment from. And two of the other companies I purchased also purchased their equipment from them. So when I bought those companies, I assumed their debt as well as, you know, what we typically owed them. And I got a call one day from the company, the CFO of the company and said, do you realize that between what you owe us and what these companies owe us, it's $480,000. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, no, I did not realize it was that much. And I had to sign a promissory note for that 480 grand personally. Mm. And I had to let them put a, uh, a lien on my house in Maui as security for the promissory note. And we went to work. It was a 24 month promissory note, by the way, paid it off in 20 months, every dime of it. Mm. Not any discounted amount, we paid it off in 20 months. But I, I remember in 2009, when all this was going on, I'm having a conversation with the accountants, the lawyers, and, and that. And somebody on the call, I can't remember who it was, whether it was a lawyer, the banker, the CPA, somebody said, well, Mr. Long, your best shot here is to file bankruptcy and just kind of start over and wash your hands. And, and you thought, do you know who you're talking to? Well, <laughs> you know, that, that's exactly what someone would expect of a guy from where yeah. I come from, right? Yeah. I take the easy way out. I refuse to do it. I said, no, yeah. that is not an option for me. Mm. I am going to work my tail off and, and I ended up working my tail off and paid that 480 note off with a bunch of other stuff. And in January of 2010, I sold the company and the economy turned around and rock and roll again. I walked away in, in really good financial condition. And mm. so it was, it was a really, really bad decision in as much as my hubris was driving my ego, honestly, Andrew, if I'm yeah. just being completely yeah. transparent with you and your yeah. audience. My arrogance, my overconfidence, I guess, hubris. Here I am, you know, four, three, four years out of prison, and I'm doing. You know, I'm the king of the king of the industry in our little small in our little small pond yeah. in Colorado, and and uh, you know, took on a lot of debt and extended yeah. myself uh, very precariously financially. But we got through it. We got you through know, it. So it was a let, tough fight. Let me ask you a question about that. I mean, I I have no doubt that you're the type of person that would say we're going to, you know take the bull by the horns and turn this around. But I can't imagine that you also probably had a moment where you thought, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah, I had that. I had that conversation with myself actually just right before the 2008 real severe downturn it happened in 2007 when the contracting community in the county where I live, they all kind of decided they were going to take me out because we had grown very quickly. I bought all these companies. Mm. I was an outsider. I wasn't part of their, you know, the, the mechanical community, the, the, the little trade association there. They didn't like me. They didn't know me. I was an ex-convict. And so in their mind, that's all they needed to know. And they moved heaven and earth to try to pull my license. They got together. They all happened to have these very powerful positions on the building departments, their board of directors. 
And they called me in one time for a private meeting and told me I could, you know, I could do this the easy way or the hard way, but I was going to have to surrender my license voluntarily or they were going to take it from me. Now, mind you, we've done nothing wrong. We had a clean business mm-hmm. since 2007. And I explained all that to them. They said, well, that's a really nice story, but, you know, do it the easy way, the hard way. So I hired a big high powered attorney. He went to the county, threatened to sue the attorney because it was a, you know, a clear shot of the railroad job, you know, just to get mm-hmm. me out of business. They were all competitors of mine. The guys on this committee were all competitors of mine. It was a total conflict of interest. Well, when they couldn't do it the easy way, they went to the hard way and they went to the local newspaper, the Colorado Springs Gazette, went to the business editor there, a guy named Wayne Heilman, and convinced him to do an expose on whether or not I should be allowed to have a contracting company in that county. And so a couple of days after I thought the whole thing was over, I go out to get our morning paper And on the front page of the paper, Andrew, above the fold, the headline in our local newspaper, Ex-Con's Life in the Balance. And there's a 20-year-old mugshot of me on the front page above the fold of our newspaper. How's that for your morning coffee? Oh, my God. You open up the paper. It's funny now. I wasn't laughing that day. And you open the newspaper, and an entire page is dedicated. I mean, they went into everything I'd ever done in my life. In the middle of the page was a little summary box that listed all my arrests and convictions and prisons and divorces and blah, blah, blah. I'll tell the story. I'm speaking. People say, why didn't you sue? I'm like, shit was all true. (laughs) Truth is an absolute defense. I can't sue the paper for a report. But it looks really bad when you have it all right there in black and white in one time without without the context of me telling the whole story, you know? And uh, so that's the kind of stuff yeah. that we had to deal with. And there were times I'm like, what in the heck am I doing here? I just, yeah. you know, and, and then on top of that, the following year, the economy crashed and it was just one thing after another. But yeah, there were some, there were some dark days, man. But, uh, you know, as Nietzsche said, you know, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And that was certainly the case in my life. You know, another thing you talked about, about being in prison and clearing out your debts and clearing out your life, you know, another thing is it's really hard to avoid the truth when you've really been through an awful situation, whether that's, in my case, drug addiction locked up, you know, into three different treatment centers and, and disappeared basically from my neighborhood. You can't just come back and go, well, I was just taking a hike in the woods. And, you know, <laughs> so in some ways, like when there's a certain liberation. So when you see that article and you know it's true and you're not going to deny it, you know, there's... I've never denied my story. I, I've always been very open about my story. But, you know, you know, as Napoleon Hill wrote, the seed of equivalent benefit out of every bad situation, that was 2007. That's when I decided I'm going to write a book about my life so no one can ever try to extort me again, because that's what they were trying to do. Yep. And I sat down that December of 07, and I began writing the manuscript of The Upside of Fear, which turned into The Power of Consistency, which turned into Consistency Selling, and so on and so forth. Wow. So tell me, let's summarize the lessons that you learned. Yeah. Well, the big lesson I've learned in my life that I hope everybody takes away from this conversation is really encapsulated in the immortal words of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Napoleon Hill, thoughts are things, right? Our expectations, our habitual thoughts create everything in our life. Nietzsche wrote that we attract that which we fear. In the Bible, Job says that which I have feared has come upon me. Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning says fear may come true. And we attract the things into our life that we fear the most, that we think about the most, right? Where your focus goes, your energy flows. And we don't have time to get in the whole, mm. you know, neurological discussion yeah. about what happens in our brain when we are afraid of something. But that's what the books are about. Your listeners are welcome to check those out. 
So the big time lesson is thoughts are things, mm. right? What you think is more important than you think. As I tell people, you better think about what you think about before you think about it. Right? <laughs> what you're thinking creates your life. As far as the worst investment ever, the episode where I borrowed the money and incurred all this debt in 08 and 09, and the near total catastrophe financially for me. By the way, I just, I'm in California now, but I came out here yesterday and, and on Saturday, I had delivery of a brand new Ferrari Roma that I custom ordered, took a year and a half to get here from Italy because of COVID and all that. And when I drove in the drive, my wife took a picture and I uh, took a video and I watched it and I'm like, you know, and in fact, I posted on it. I like mm. work hard, stay focused, defy the haters. And eventually you're going to win. And I look at my life now today and I think about the stuff I've been through, the financial difficulty, the personal difficulty, all these different things, death, divorce, you know, financial problems, all these things. And, and today I look at my life, it's just so amazing. But here's the lesson mm. that I learned from my worst investment ever. It's very simple. In business, and you're in a bad spot, you cannot steal your way out of it. You cannot cheat your way out of it, and you cannot borrow your way out of it. The only way out of it is to sell your way out of it. Because that financial jam that I was in 08 and 09, honestly, everything I thought I knew about sales up to that time was basically theoretical. We were, we were good, mm. but like we got to get better. In a bad economy, we got to get better at selling. We got to sell more at better margins in a crappy economy. And that's when I began to develop sales systems for my sales team so that we, we just wouldn't rely on their talents and their skills. They had a lot of those things, mm -hmm. but I gave them a system, a system that was based on basic psychology, basic sales principles, you know, basic business principles, value propositions, executing on those, right? You cannot cheat, lie, or borrow your way out of financial trouble. You got to sell your way out of it. Mm. And that's my advice to every entrepreneur, every company, right? Learn how to sell at great margins. You got to deliver the goods, right? Because salespeople, we're promise makers. Yeah. The operations people, the promise keepers. And you got to be just as concerned about the promise keepers. Otherwise, you're a fraud. Otherwise, you're just snake oil, right? Otherwise, you're the great Gatsby, right? <laughs> you're, just, you're just thin as the wind, mm -hmm. You got operations got to be there, but you got to sell it because nothing happens till something gets sold. So this is the point where I normally give my takeaways, but I'm going to leave that for right now because I've already shared a lot of this. And I want to go into what you just said, and maybe you can just give a little help on that. Let's imagine the, the listeners out there who are, who are owners of businesses, running businesses, they're constantly torn between the selling and the operating. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's not just because, oh, I like doing the operation more than I like doing sales. It's also that our operation is constantly falling apart or we're, our systems are not that great or whatever that is. How does a leader get themselves to be able to move their focus onto that sales? Obviously, well, you had a fire under, under you that said, we're going to solve this through sales. But I'm just curious, like, what advice would you give that super busy person out there who is struggling and is kind of missing the point? It's just the sales, guys. Let's go. There's a great book. There's two great books I'm going to refer to. Both are associated with Franklin Covey. The first, of course, is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But there's another book written by, it's, it's through Franklin Covey, published it, I believe, a guy named uh, McChesney. It's called The Four Disciplines of Execution. And in The Four Disciplines of Execution, 
Covey talks about this in the seven habits also about how easy it is for us to get caught up in what they refer to as the whirlwind. And that's what you're talking, the whirlwind, right? Mm. I don't have, you know, it's, it's like there's firefighting in business, right? The constant fires, phones ringing, upset customers, somebody wrecked a truck, somebody fell through a ceiling, somebody forgot to pay a bill. There's always the fires that we're putting out constantly, right? And then there's the fire prevention. The fire prevention is what Dr. Recovery, Dr. Covey referred to in the seven habits about his four quadrants of time, was they call quadrant two time planning, prevention, preparation, relationship building, right? Things that are, are not urgent, but they're very important, right? Because the things that are most important in our lives and our business are the ones most easy to postpone. Think about it for a second. Date night with your wife, going to the gym, right? Planning for your business, learning how to sell, the training, right? The things that are the most important are never urgent. Hmm. Therefore, they're the easiest to postpone. And so quadrant two is planning, preparation, prevention. And I don't have time to get into the whole seven habits, yeah. but read the book and study it. And you'll learn it. But quadrant two is fire prevention. The problem is sometimes you're doing so much firefighting in quadrant one, you don't have time to learn how to prevent the fires. Dr. Covey used to say, this is being too busy driving your car to have time to stop and get gas, right? Eventually it catches up with you, right? He was a brilliant man, brilliant yeah. man. Very funny man Well, as well. So you got to find time to focus on the planning, preparation, prevention, right? And that's got to come from quadrant three and quadrant four. Quadrant three is the, the quadrant of deception. It's things mm -hmm. that seem important that really aren't. And then the quadrant of waste, which is quadrant four, just wasting time. Yep. You got to look at your schedule and your life. You got to find the things that are in quadrants three and four. And you got to find that time and devote it to quadrant two, which is building the systems, the processes, to help eliminate the whirlwind, right? And I'm not saying it's easy, but we don't have the luxury of only doing the easy stuff, right? Mm. Yep, yep. We, we, we get to do the easy stuff and the hard stuff in life. So it's about finding the time. It takes discipline. In fact, Dr. Covey used to call this, you know, the habit of execution and discipline and, and integrity because you got to set time for planning, prevention, sales training, building the systems, that type of thing in quadrant two. And you have to have the integrity to execute around those priorities regardless of the whirlwind. Got it. So that's a very quick description, a discussion of a very complex topic, but I would highly recommend people read the four disciplines of execution and the seven habits of highly effective people to really get a thorough understanding of what it takes to do what you're talking about. I would also highly, highly recommend for small companies, especially the E-Myth. Yeah, great. Because the E-Myth tells a brilliant little story about mm. a bakery. And when you're a small company, you're wearing a lot of hats, but you still have to create your organizational chart. Mm -hmm. and identify all the various functions of your business. Now, your name will be in every box initially, but you begin to recognize, okay, I like being in this box. You mentioned sales, for example, versus yeah. operations. Maybe I really like being in the operations, but I hate being in sales. Well, sales is the first place I got I to gotta put somebody else's name. It helps you prioritize what you need to do next to grow. It's mm -hmm. a brilliant book, the email. Yeah. yeah, all of those books are great, and I'll put them in the show notes, including also your books. And it just reminds me, you know, I, I, when I started my own business, I realized that, you know, when I worked at big banks and investment banks and stuff, you know, you have a bad day, it doesn't affect the business. Right. You have a bad week, it doesn't affect Citibank's business. You have a bad month, it doesn't affect Citibank's business. You have a bad year, it doesn't affect Citibank's business. Yeah. But if you have a bad day, bad week, bad month in your own business, you're in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. 
And that's when I realized for myself that I, I focus on four hours. I say, basically, I have four hours a day. That's my core time that I can really get something done. And for me, just because of my own weird behavior, I'm usually up at about four in the morning. And by five or so, I'm at my desk. And I get my four hours. And now, listening to what you just described, it's telling me, because I wasn't asking for advice for my listeners, actually. I was asking advice for me. So what I just got. If you're blocking out those four hours yep. for quadrant two time, you're doing the tough work yep. in those four hours. The, the question is, what am I doing during that time? And I think what I just got from you is it's time to squeeze that sales into that time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Got it. Nothing happens until something gets sold. Thomas Watson, you know, IBM, that was his famous. You think about IBM at that time back in, you know, in the you know 50s and 60s and 70s was the, the preeminent technology company on the planet, you know, yeah, yeah. but their philosophy was nothing happens till something gets sold because, you know, cash is king. Yeah. And in Thailand, we I have one of my businesses is a coffee factory and we sell to hotels, coffee shops and restaurants and offices. So tourism has been destroyed. Yeah. All of those customers are gone. Coffee shops and offices have been shut down. They're only doing delivery, and that's difficult for us and for them. And then work from home now has meant there's nobody in the offices. And in Thailand, you know, the government really shut some things down for long periods of time. So it's like, how do we survive that? And my business partner says, he has a saying, sales solves everything. <laughs> Sometimes he replaces it with coffee. He says, coffee solves everything, but you know, get the point all right so based upon what you learned from this story and all that you've learned what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate i would say don't give up don't lay down no matter how bad no matter how bad it seems it feels no matter how hard you've tried and perhaps came up short in the past there's no such thing as failure as long as you understand each setback is a learning opportunity. 99% of what I learned in my life, I've learned from my failures. When things go right, Andrew, like half the time, I don't even know why. Like, wow, we made some money. How'd we do that? But when things go wrong, I figured it out really quick. And learning comes from those difficulties. I had to deal a number of years ago, my sister committed suicide in 2005, excuse me, 2004, December of 2004. And I got really interested in suicide. I couldn't understand. She was a brilliant attorney. She was beautiful, smart, and funny. She had a drug addiction and an alcohol problem for sure. Went through a tough divorce and decided to check out, put a 38 in her mouth. And I was surprised two things. Number one, how many people are touched by suicide? Like everybody I meet now has known somebody or dealt with. It's like, it's way more common than I thought. Mm. That's the ultimate laying down, right? That's the giving up. And, and I wonder how that could happen. And I, I did a little reading on it. And you know what I learned about people that commit suicide? When they're so depressed and so just, there's so much pain and there's so much hurt. We've all had those moments, right? Certain people get there and they forget it will ever feel better. They forget they'll feel better in an hour or in two hours, usually because there's drugs and alcohol involved. They forget like, oh, tomorrow I'll feel great. And what I learned is these suicide hotlines, when they get some of that situation, their number one priority is to get people, remember like, you're gonna feel better in an hour. Mm. Because people, they think they're gonna feel the way they feel that moment the rest of their life. And, and that's overwhelming for anybody. Yep. They forget they're gonna feel better. And so 
while we're not talking about that serious of a situation here with your listeners, there are times in your business, in your life where you just feel like you want to give up. And you have to remember that it's going to get better in an hour, in a day, in a week, it's going to get better. You know, there's this thing about how you get in a bad mood. Things happen and we get in a bad mood. It's normal to get in a bad mood. We all get in bad moods. If you stay in a bad mood, you don't get out of it. In other words, you don't move on from it. It turns into a bad attitude, right? That's a little longer term. Now you just got kind of an attitude. And if you get stuck there for a long enough time, it becomes a personality. Mm-hmm. So when you get in the bad moods, you get down, you get in that bad place. You have to remember it's going to get better. Never lay down. You fall down, fine. What's the old Chinese proverb? Fall down eight times, get up nine, right? Yep. Pretty simple stuff, yep. Eastern philosophy, right? You got to get back up. You got to remember that it's going to be better. And Beautiful. if you work hard and you stay focused, my experience has been in my own life and people I work with, success is always closer than we think if we stay focused and, and don't give up. Great. So I have two last questions. Uh, the first one is just for people that like what they hear, obviously, I'm going to have the links in the show notes to everything yeah. and you know, they can go to, to Amazon. But besides that, where is the best place to follow you, to learn from you, to get you know, training yeah. from you or that type of thing? Yeah, I'm all over the social media, you know, at Weldon Long, W-E-L-D-O-N-L-O-N-G, Weldon Long. Also, my website, WeldonLong.com. And we have a new program, actually. It's an online course based on the power of consistency and another one based on consistency selling. Mm. They're about four-hour courses each with testing, and it's, it's all online, this digital platform. It's a brilliant platform developed by a guy out in Las Vegas. And so we put our stuff on there and shot all new content for it. They can go to my website and just contact us through the website to get some information on that. If they're looking how to change that mindset, how to create the mindset to thrive in the face of adversity, because that's the key to success in my book. Learn how to thrive in the face of adversity. So weldonlong.com and all the social media stuff. And as you mentioned, Amazon as well. Fantastic. So my last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, it's interesting. So as you may know, as you have seen, COVID changed a lot of things. And I remember when COVID hit about March of last year, I was on, a, on the road on a speaking tour in Florida. And I was between Orlando and Miami. I was with my speaking manager and we were driving the three hours because it was just easier than flying. And during those three hours, our phones started blowing up with text messages and emails. And between Orlando and Miami, I had about $100,000 of business that got postponed or canceled. Speaking events, I couldn't believe it. So we came home to give it two weeks to flatten the curve. <laughs> And I learned very quickly, like we all did, it wasn't going to just be two weeks. And I remember telling my assistant, wonderful young lady, Krista Ortuno, everybody was saying, you know, everybody's going to come out of this thing, either pregnant or fat. Well, I didn't come out pregnant. (laughs) She and her husband had a baby right at the end of COVID just recently, a few months ago. And I put on 15 pounds. Now I've lost that 15 pounds, but I'm having so much fun with it. I'm going to take off another 15 or 20. So at a personal goal, it's more family time. I'm working less. I'm loving it. Mm. And uh, try to get back down to my fighting weight when I was in my thirties. Business-wise, I launched an app called Rehash Leads. Mm. It's an app for the heating and air. Actually, it's we're selling primarily in the heating and air conditioning industry now, but it's for all home services. It's a 
a lead generation app and a lead management app that automates the follow-up process with videos and content and different things. I do a lot of work with a, a nonprofit in Sacramento, the Electric Gas Industry Association, do a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, I opened a heating and air conditioning company two years ago. It's funny, I got, when I sold my last company in 2010, heating and air conditioning is a hard business, a lot yeah. of moving parts. Margins are thin, a lot of moving parts, right? Well, I sold my last company in 2010, January 2010, once we got it back healthy again, mm-hmm. I sold it, That whole, all those five or six HVAC companies. And I told my wife, if I ever even suggest them and get back in the heating and air conditioning Strap business, me down. I want you to shoot me, right? Yeah. Problem is, Andrew, I divorced that wife and I forgot to tell my new wife. <laughs> uh. Two years ago, my brother-in-law came to me and said, hey, let's open an HVAC company. I'm like, okay. And my wife said, okay, sounds like fun. Now she knows. But I will tell you that company, we just finished our second year. This is our second full year. And we did uh, just was going some sales numbers before this call. We closed out this month with just a million dollars, over a million dollars in sales. And this is our 25th month. So we're growing that business quickly too. And it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. So I've got some business stuff, some personal stuff. I, yep. I, I fell in love with the RV life. So I got this big bus and I want to spend more time in my bus with my wife and my cats. <laughs> what a life. What yeah. a journey. Well, I want to drive that new Ferrari a little bit. I would say so. Um, well, listeners, <laughs> there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return and actually even sales in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com. So join to get the special discount I mentioned before for podcast listeners to my six weeks valuation masterclass bootcamp. As we conclude, Weldon, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Your thoughts are things, right? Think about what you think about. And thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate this. You're a very interesting person and I uh, just really enjoyed your story as well. And congratulations on your, on a, all your success. The most successful yeah. people, you just proved my point. They always have some situation they overcame in the past and you're just more proof of that. So keep Amen. up the great work, friend. Thank you. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.